Two Tribes is a two-part documentary series for RTE looking at the history of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and their roots in the Irish Civil War and how an intense rivalry gave way eventually to a coalition government. Now we bring you extended interviews with participants in the series. Nora Owen was deputy leader of Fine Gael and Minister for Justice in coalition with Labour. Her Fine Gael heritage is impeccable. Well, I suppose it's fair to say that my background, because I'm a grandniece of Michael Collins, people would have known locally that I was Fine Gael. But I wasn't actually an active member of Fine Gael when I stood in 1979 for the council. The local branch approached me. I was very active in all community activities in Malahide, where I lived. And I was approached by the chairman and another officer of the Fine Gael branch after a community council meeting and they said there's a local election coming up uh, in June. This was February 79. I hadn't really realised there was a local election coming up and they said we were thinking you'd make a great candidate. And I was a little bit embarrassed in a way. I had three young children. I wasn't actively in the, the branch membership and I thought somebody in the branch, as I subsequently learned, would really like to stand and here they're coming to me. But I went home, spoke to my husband, Brian, spoke to my mother because I knew I, was, I would need some backup and uh, took a few weeks and then said I would stand. And I, that's how I became a candidate. The important thing was that there was a whole new ward in the council. They had drawn a line at swords. So it meant there were no sitting councillors on the side of the line I was on. So we all, there were 12 candidates and we all had the same chance as each other. Given your political lineage, as it were, what kind of stories or family folklore did you absorb when you were growing up? Sean, to be honest, not a lot. My mother was not able to talk about uh, her background. She had been 10 years of age when the Black and Tans came and burnt them out of their house. And herself and her older sister, Mary Pierce, were sent off to ring. The baby was about six months, 12 months old. Um, and they were all separated out to a whole lot of houses. So it was very traumatic time for her. Her, her, her father had been arrested on his way home from a county council meeting. And um, that was the day the Black and Tans came and burnt down the house. So here's a young girl, no home, father gone to Spike Island uh, into prison. And um, she couldn't talk about it. We were all in our late teens, even our early 20s, before she began to open up a bit and talked about when she saw her house burning, tried to run back in to collect her school bag because she was nervous the teacher would be cross the next day because she didn't have her school bag. And so, you know, we, we don't always see the trauma that people suffered at that time. But what did you hear? What did you learn or absorb about Michael Collins? Well, um, uh, when, when we were a bit older, there was talk about Michael Collins and also the fact that he was extraordinarily warm to his nieces and nephews. They all seemed to love him at that time. I'm not sure they were all absolutely aware because they were all young exactly what he was doing and what was really happening. But there was, I mean, some of the older generation at that time would have been very conscious of the kind of man he was. My, my two grand-aunts, Katie and Hanny, who looked after him when he went to London, they were interesting because they could see, even at the age of 16, there was huge leadership in this man. He was 
fun to be with, but he was also, you know, knew where he wanted to go. When he went to London, he was 16, joined up with the GAA and got involved. So from a very early age, he was a leader. And remember when his father was dying, his father was 74 when he was born. When his father was dying, Michael Collins was seven. And he looked at the other relatives, at the other family in the room, and he said, take care of this boy. He said, he'll do great things. He could see already at seven, this was a young boy who had great leadership potential. When did you become aware of this notion of civil war politics then? Look, when I stood in 1979, you know, there was a huge gap between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. You know, you just, you, you went to the houses, uh, even early days, you were told there were certain houses, don't waste your time going up. If it's a long drive, don't waste your time going up. More so outside of Dublin. In the urban areas, you tended to knock on every door. But outside of Dublin, they knew every seed, breed and generation of the people in their constituencies. And they would say, I remember doing by-elections around the country, and they would say, no need to go up that drive, you'll, you'll get thrown out or they won't. And that was Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Remember, it was just Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and what we called the half party of Labour. So, so uh, the, that tension was there all the time. But I, I, I know the hardest question I often got at that time was, tell me what the difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael is. Most of us, you'd mention, Northern Ireland, maybe, because there was a bit of a difference. But Fine Gaelers tended to see that Fine Gael was a party of integrity and honesty. And uh, in contrast, Fianna Fáil weren't. And that was the way a lot of people put it, that they, they you know, when they were going around, they said, oh, no, I don't like those, they're Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil voters had very long memories as well. Like, I remember going to doors and years after their parents would have got a house, they'd still say, ah, no, I always have to vote for Fianna Fáil because my father and mother or my grandfather and grandmother got a house from Fianna Fáil. That's the way they looked on it. And therefore, no matter how much they liked you, they weren't going to change their vote. W would it be fair to say that Fianna Fáil were better at looking after the needs and wants of ordinary people? Yes, they, they had very active uh, brand, uh, common members, as they were. Um, the way of uh, identifying people, if they said, I was in a branch, you knew they were either Labour or Fine Gael, and if they said they were in a common, you knew they were Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil had very, very loyal members, but Fine Gael built that up too. In the, around the Garrett time, the branches became much stronger, um, and there were always people willing to go out and canvass. But where Fianna Fáil might have 20 people out in a particular area, Fine Gael might have 10 or 11. So they were always better at getting their people out. They took buses around, took people around. So there was a much bigger activity. But sadly, that has changed now. And, and the branch structures in both in Fine Gael and the common structures in Fianna Fáil have definitely uh, gone down and that's because people have got older and younger people are not actually joining political parties. They're taking a much wider view of who to vote for. You got active in politics at a time when Fine Gael was changing a new leader, building up the organisation, changing policies, looking to young young people and to women. That was Gareth Fitzgerald. D describe the kind of atmosphere that was in the party in those years. Yes, I mean, it, there was a general secretary of the party at that time, uh, Peter Prendergast. And when the 79 
local elections came around, it was quite clear that there'd been a lot of thinking in headquarters, particularly with Garrett, that they needed to go out and look for new, fresh, young candidates, um, you know, to, to be ready to take on the doll seats if possible. And so a whole heap of us, George Birmingham, Richard Bruton, Mary Flaherty, myself, we all got approached by Peter Prendergast. I mean, I was approached by the local branch and then by Peter Prendergast. And we were kind of told you really didn't have a choice once you were fingered, as it were, to stand. And um, so so and you, you were given a lot of help by the local organisation. Um, you weren't given money or anything, but you were given help and there was some advertising done on your behalf. Um, and it was very exciting time because Garrett was very anxious to see more women stand. So I was very taken by that and very conscious. And I was very active and I felt I could do the job. I'm not being boastful or anything, but I was residence association, you know, local newspaper um, various other things like that. And I felt I had some of the skills, but I wasn't working outside of the home. I was at home raising my three children. So you have a little nervousness about that. You're not used to the workforce. You're not used to trade unions and all that. So I was a bit nervous about it when the, when the general election came in 81. And one of the big talking points in that general election, speaking of women in the home, was the idea that there was going to be £9.60 for the benefit of the stay-at-home wives. Now, what are your recollections and reflections on that? Well, I mean, it, it, to be honest, it was not a good policy. It, it was a, I, I thought it was a bit insulting in a way. First of all, no way was 960 going to compensate a woman for the work she's doing in the, in the home, minding the children, bringing them to school, minding, minding the whole family, food, everything. So it just became a kind of... Um, a bit of a cliche, you know, we'll give her 960 and that'll keep her happy. I wasn't happy with it. And I, I am worried about policies that can look a bit like, you know, just picking out something and we'll keep the women happy. I'm not a huge, very big quota supporter of a certain type of quota. So I wasn't overly happy with the 960 and it was a nightmare going around because a woman would come to the door and, and immediately say, is that all I'm worth, you know, 960? And uh, there were other things they could have done. Fine and Labour got a solid majority, a working majority in the November 82 election. They got the full term. Um, it was a time uh, of great economic stress and distress. It was also a time of turmoil where social issues were concerned. What do you remember from that? Yes. I mean, in, in November 82, I mean, Fine Gael got within, I think, about eight seats of Fianna Fáil, which was extraordinary because we were always at least 10, 15 seats behind them. So it was a very big change for people to recognise that after 16 or 17 continuous years nearly of Fianna Fáil in government, there was a possibility that Fine Gael might, might beat them. Uh, the social issues, Garrett was very, very keen on these. Our parliamentary party would have been not quite split 50-50, but there would have been a pretty good percentage of people who didn't want to really take on any of these social issues. In uh, 1986, we, we ran the first divorce referendum. I was on a subcommittee with Peter Barry. And to be honest, we hadn't done our homework when we put the, the vote to the people. We hadn't thought about who'd get the pension, who'd get the, who'd get the work pension and who'd get the social welfare pension. 
uh, the home, you know, all those kind of issues. As soon as the election campaign went on for that referendum, those issues came up. And I met good, open women who were quite happy in eventually to be divorced. But early on, they said, oh, no, I'm not voting for that. I'm not giving him a chance to get away. Or I want to know exactly where I'd stand if he decided, if we decided to get divorced. And it, and it failed. And then we re-ran it again then in 1996, by which time things like ownership of farms and ownership of homes and pension rights had all been sorted out. And it, it was carried, but not, not hugely. So within our parliamentary party, there would have been quite heavy debates about bringing those issues forward. And what about the abortion referendum, oh. the Eighth Amendment in 1983? That was something, the wording came initially from Fianna Fáil, but Gareth Fitzgerald initially agreed to go along with it. That's right. It was a very difficult time. I, I have sympathy for Gareth Fitzgerald and Charlie Hawhey because it was a very aggressive campaign of people approaching us all saying, if you don't vote for this referendum, you are a killer, you are an abortionist. And when uh, Peter Sutherland, who was then the Attorney General, advised Garrett that the wording on the contrary would actually maybe allow abortion to come into Ireland, we had a very lively debate in our parliamentary party. And um, I remember there was actually a vote and, and we split and a number of us wanted the thing to be dropped. But uh, Garrett in the end said, look, it's, it's just too sensitive. And he made a comment to me. I remember, I'm sure I can say it now. He said, Nora, you're in an urban middle class kind of constituency. You can, if we drop this, you can perhaps have the capacity to explain to people exactly why it's being dropped. But he said, in some of the very rural constituencies, those TDs have to go back to their constituencies and try to explain to people who think they are abortionists because we've dropped the referendum. And Garrett's attitude was, let the people have a say. But it was a terrible time, Sean. There, there were, you'd walk around, at that time there was much freer access to the doll. And uh, now, you know, there's much more security, but people seemed to be able to get into the doll, maybe brought in by one TD. And then they were kind of abandoned to wander around the doll corridors. Accosting us is the only way I can say. I can remember I knew more about the patterns on the wallpaper because I would see somebody coming towards me and I would kind of take, you didn't have mobile phones to distract you. You'd take a file out and just turn in against the wall and be studying it in the hope that the person walking towards you wouldn't accost you. We were being accosted everywhere and, and, and criticised. In some cases, accosted by people with strong Fine Gael roots. Indeed, indeed. Uh, the sister of a, a sitting TD and minister was one of the people I remember well. But it was, you know, they, they were very, very zealous about what they wanted and they were determined to make you feel as if you were uh, you were doing something very bad if you didn't vote for the referendum. There was a very vigorous uh, division, there was a very vigorous sense of combat, parliamentary combat, between Gareth Fitzgerald as Taoiseach and Charles Hawhey as leader of the opposition. Yes, and that was interesting because they'd been in college together and I gather that they got on all right in college and, and I understand Gareth's wife got on very well with Charlie in college. But there was, and... It was, it was partly to do with sort of Garrett trying to show that Fine Gael had the same rights to be in government and that we could run the country, uh, that it, it wasn't a God-given right for Fianna Fáil to be constantly getting re-elected. 
And then other things were beginning to emerge about about Charlie Hawhey's wealth and uh, that sort of thing. And it was it was beginning to be noticed by the public. And Garrett felt he should be able to say it. And and so that led to a lot of tension. And uh, Charlie was very popular. He had been a good minister in a number of ministries, but his Achilles heel was definitely showing and people were questioning where, you know, where he had got his wealth from, uh, you know, because he really seemed to be living a very wealthy life from what was an ordinary doll salary. That phrase that Garrett Fitzgerald used, now you weren't in the doll at that stage when Charles Hawhey became Taoiseach, leader of Fianna Fáil and then Taoiseach, of having a flawed pedigree. Yes, it's a, it's an expression that probably shouldn't have been used. I, I wasn't particularly happy when I saw it because it, it talks about a flawed pedigree. You're bringing his whole family into it. And there were people that must have been very hurt by that, his mother and various sisters and all that. It wasn't, it wasn't Garrett's finest expression. And, and I, I think in hindsight, he probably wouldn't have used it. But it was, it was, you know, politics was tough and, and, and uh, he was trying to get across to people that maybe Charlie Hawhey wasn't the best and most suitable person to be Taoiseach. They fought bitterly, I think, over Northern Ireland, over uh, Anglo-Irish affairs, over the Anglo-Irish agreement. Yes, I, I, was, I served on the New Ireland Forum as a very young TD when I went in and uh, I remember it well sitting with Fianna Fáil and then there was uh, the, the SDLP, Fine Gael and Labour. And um, it was very difficult to get agreement on, on, on what we were going to say in the, in the New Ireland report. And that's where the main difference between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil was being noticed by people because Garrett and in turn John Bruton uh, and Alan Jukes, they would have been leaders of Fine Gael who would have seen you can't coerce, you can't force the unionists into a united Ireland and you must listen to what they have to say. Uh, whereas Charlie was, was willing and Fianna Fáil was willing to kind of push forward and, uh, and really not be that worried about how the unionists felt. Garrett they felt Fit themselves as British citizens. Garrett Fitzgerald made great play of his... Uh, pledge not to go over the heads of the unionists, that he would take them into consideration, they couldn't be coerced. And yet that's exactly what he did when it came to negotiating the Anglo-Irish Agreement with Mrs Thatcher. Wasn't it a case at that time of Garrett Fitzgerald setting aside a core value? Well, here, here's the thing, Sean, core values in political parties, do they last for 50 years? Do they last for 100 years? I mean, institutions like RT and all these other institutions will have certain core values at certain times and then things move on and you have to begin to adjust. Um, I probably had core values when I was 20 or 30 or 40 and then as you get into politics you begin to realise that something you thought cannot happen. You have to begin to adjust and, and make sure that, that you, you adjust your own thinking and get legislation changed. I mean, I only have to quote to you the Criminal Assets Bureau when I was minister. We, we, we attacked a lot of core values at that time by, you know, taking people's assets before they were convicted in court. It was always a core value that you were innocent until you were proven guilty. But we had to do that because of the crime levels and because of the murders that had happened, Veronica Guerin and Jerry McCabe and others. What was it like being Minister for Justice? It was... I was delighted, if that's the right word. It was, 
it was a tough ministry because there wasn't a morning, an afternoon or an evening when something wasn't happening. And even journalists, like yourself, wouldn't always know. I mean, six o'clock in the morning, you'd get a phone call to tell you that there'd been riot in the prison or that some somebody had escaped or something. And there was things going on behind the scenes that never emerged or couldn't emerge, but you had to take steps to, to take action on them. So it was, it was challenging. And, um, but it was also a great ministry to be in because you knew you could make a difference. And you, I mean, we had, we had, we were with Labour and we were with the progress, um, Pranchista Ross's party. And, um, you know, there was tension in the cabinet about things that we wanted to do as well. And I remember not giving away any cabinet secrets, but I remember John Bruton saying to me, be careful what you are demanding at cabinet, because if you demand more money for the guards or for the prisons, then some of the other ministers will feel that they can do it as well. I always felt that justice was the one that should be getting the most money, but education needed money, health needed money. And Michael Noonan and myself, I mean, Michael was Minister for Health, and when he was in trouble, I was usually safe. And when I was in trouble, he was usually um, uh, kind of able to get on with his policy stuff. So it was it was a tense department, excellent staff. I mean, this is what you can't really know when you're on the outside, just how dedicated the staff are. And remember, for years, the justice staff had always dealt with Fianna Fallers. They have to make the adjustment when when, when a, a Fine Gael minister comes in and they make it and they look after you loyally and they advise you, and that's very important. Whatever about <clears throat> what was going on behind closed doors, what wasn't going on behind closed doors, was the intense uh, focus on you in the doll, particularly uh, brought forward by John O'Donoghue, who was then Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on justice. Yes, I took over as Minister for Justice in December 1994 when the Fianna Fáil Labour government collapsed. Um, it was just at a kind of turn in the economy. Things were beginning to lift. And um, as we got into government, you know, the, the, the emphasis was going off the economy. And so the opposition had to find another emphasis. And John O'Donoghue from Kerry went for me bald-headed. Did you feel at any stage that the attacks on you were personal or personalised? I don't know that they were personalised to me, Nora Owen, but I think they were, they were done uh, with some intent that there were enough issues going on in justice that you could have a go at. And I will remember being particularly hurt when uh, he's dead now, so I'm not maligning him in any way, but a male journalist was writing about crime and he said, um, this wouldn't be happening if Michael Noonan had been Minister for Justice because if there was a man in charge. And I just made a joke of it when I met him and I said, oh yes, they're all sitting around in their criminal houses saying, well, oh, there's a woman in there, let's go out and commit a robbery or let's go out and, and do something bad. I mean, it was a stupid thing to say and of course had no truth in it at all. Whether you were male or female, crime will be always having to be dealt with. And so there was, I think, a little bit of misogyny, but not, not a huge amount. I didn't, I didn't try to find it. I didn't want to, to be part of my raison d'etre there. I wanted to get on with the work that I had to do. How did you get on outside of the doll, outside of the, if you like, the arena of combat with John O'Donoghue? 
I got on quite well with him. John O'Donoghue's mother had been a counsellor and I think was widowed quite young. And I remember John saying to me one day, my God, he said, I thought my mother was a strong one. He said, but you're not bad behind her, you know. He, I think he felt that he could keep at me because I would kind of come back at him uh, with, uh, you know, if he made a speech in the doll, I might upset him by saying, not one of your best, John, you know, only about six out of 10 for that, because he really used to get intense in the doll. So to what extent then are these exchanges that we see, to what extent are they a charade? They're not fully a charade, uh, because when you're in the doll, you're f you, you have to answer for the policies you're bringing in, you have to answer for the new legislation. But I mean, you still can come out and have a cup of coffee with somebody. You can still come out because remember, we're all elected by the same group of people. Uh, somebody who voted for John O'Donoghue who might also have given a number two to a Fine Gael colleague down in Kerry. So you, you have to be conscious that we're all voted in by people. So there would generally not be heavy tension outside of the chamber, but in the chamber, you have to fight your corner. And so sometimes the public do get that impression that we are literally at each other's throat the whole time. Very often you work with somebody, you get, I mean, the Criminal Assets Bureau was a real case in point. It was the doll working in absolute harmony to get that legislation in. The legislation that John O'Donoghue had printed about a year and a half earlier, I took that legislation. It had to be amended because it really wasn't suitable, but I, gave credit to John O'Donoghue, which is important because he had published it himself. And um, that legislation became one of the pieces along with revenue legislation. You're out of the doll, I think, about 20 years now yes. this year, Nora Owen. Um, at what stage did you look around and say, my goodness, the day might come when Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil would be working in government together as part of a coalition? I never saw that really until, um, I suppose it was the 20, 2011 onwards. It, it certainly wasn't in my head. I left the doll in 2002 and there was no inkling that, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil would come together as a, as, a, as a coalition. But you know, when Enda went in then in 2016 and we got this working together with Fianna Fáil, not quite a coalition, um, I began to realize that really, the other parties that were coming onto the scene, particularly Sinn Féin, were going to challenge the two big parties. And it forced the two big parties to begin to talk to each other. I mean, I remember uh, um, questionnaires being done uh, in Fine Gael. It might have gone back, I think, to a man called Michael Marsh doing, doing questionnaires and trying to find out what Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, what the differences were. Nobody could really answer it other than saying, oh, well, we have a different policy on Northern Ireland and Fine Gael is much more uh, of an integrity party or an honest party and we have nice people and all the rest. We were very middle class in a lot of ways, but there was never any question of them joining, of the parties joining together. But eventually the electorate maybe began to make that necessary as, and, and, and I think now the, the two parties are working well together and who knows that they may well have to be ready for at the next election to begin to seriously, maybe not put out a, a platform together in the election, but certainly not to abandon what they've been working together now to do, I think. Uh, Are you thinking of transfers? Yes, and transfers, Sean, have been 
I mean, early on when I started in politics in 79, 81, like the transfer from one Fine Gaelor to another would be 80 plus percent. It's right down in, in the low 30s and even lower than that in some instances. And you see, I've watched elections and you see one Fine Gael, two Green, three Fianna Fáil, four Sinn Féin even. I mean, there's no, the loyalty has kind of moved on now from the transfers and there's a lot of personal individual votes being done now. Somebody said, I like the cut of his jib, her jib, I'm going to vote for them and then I'm going to go back to my party. Could you envisage circumstances in which Fine Gael might find itself in coalition with Sinn Féin? I don't actually. I, I just think that's probably a step at this stage that would not happen. I think it's much more likely that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will, will try to form a government the next time. I mean, Sinn Féin has a long way to go to get to 85 seats, which they won't get. And even if they get a, an increase in what they have, they still have to put a coalition together with a, quite a mixture of, of different parties. And I mean, it's possible that Fianna Fáil could talk to them and that could be uh, the next government. I don't personally think there's any appetite for Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. And don't ask me why there, there couldn't be, but I just think that would be a step too far for anybody, the loyal Fine Gaelers at the moment. We talked earlier about <clears throat> the, 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 the doll exchanges with Fianna Fáil, that would have been at national level. What about in the constituency, yourself and Ray Burke? We would have attended meetings together. We wouldn't have been close, Sean, that's the truth of it. Um, we would have gone to public meetings together. Um, Ray was the kind of character he is, a arrive in and with great bluster into meetings and he was always the senior person. I, I wasn't a minister till 94, so Ray and indeed John, the late John Boland, who was, who was the Fine Gael TD, they were both ministers, so they were always the senior ones. So I was always sitting quietly until they had their say at meetings. So there wouldn't have been much uh, linkage with, 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 with Ray Burke. I would have worked all right with some of the Fianna Fáil councillors on the council. I was on the council for 15 years and, and I worked well with Fianna Fáil councillors, you know, when you were looking at roads and you were looking at, at, at services in your constituency. I mean, if a Fianna Fáil put forward something for your constituency in a service, well, you'd be very stupid if you went against it, if it was something you wanted to see happening, you know, whether it was a new footpath or, or, or trees to be planted or whatever it was. Talking of trees, yes, there's a good story about that. But we won't go Well, I mean, there was a by-election on and um, it was in Dublin West and we had a candidate, Liam Skelly, and it was Ray Burke, or um, Dick Burke had been sent off to Europe by Charlie because he thought he could just win the seat back there and it would be great. And... Um, there was a lot of activity in one area in, in West Dublin where the residents were very angry because the trees and the grass had never been planted. And apparently they woke up one morning and there was a few vans there and a few, uh, a few garden centres uh, products and somebody planted the whole place. Um, the by-election was lost. And the day after the by-election, the same trucks came back and removed all the plants. They had been left in their pots when they were planted and they were taken out again. And that was done uh, at the request of Ray Burke. That particular by-election, 1982, 40 years ago, it was possibly the most intense by-election, intensely fought by-election, certainly in the capital, would it have been? Yes, it would, because of the background. Um, because Charlie had thought, I'll be a smart one. We need a new uh, commissioner in Europe. 
Uh, Dick Burke was a very experienced ex-minister and um, very suitable. I mean, he didn't get a, a commissionership from Fine Gael because we weren't in the position to hand them out. But um, Charlie quietly approached Dick Burke and uh, offered him the commissionership. Some felt he shouldn't have taken it, but he did. And it's, it's his, it was his business. It was a big, a big plum to be offered to turn down. And uh, Charlie had done it on the basis that he thought he could win the by-election and get another seat. Remember, the, the, the numbers were very tight in those 80s, those early 80s year, because we, we had an election in 81, then we had an election in February 82, and another one in November 82. So one person missing could have changed a vote. A senior organiser in Fine Gael said to me at the time about Dick Burke after that had happened, he won't now be buried in the Fine Gael plot. It was seen as treason of the yes. worst order. I mean, was that a reflection? I mean, was it seen as something that was unthinkable that you would take such a plum that this was civil war politics yes, and, uh, at the time? And it, yeah. like, he, he, had, he had betrayed the party. Well, people felt that, and, and, and I heard many people saying, you know, he's, he's, he shouldn't have taken it. He, he walked into Charlie's trap. Um, it was a difficult thing to turn down, Sean. I mean, you know, if you're offered a, a plum like that, um, Dick wasn't a minister at that stage, and, uh, you know, he thought I might never get a chance again to be a commissioner, and Dick felt he had the capacity to be a good commissioner. And uh, Charlie must have seduced him into taking it is the only way I can say it and 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 he took it but he wasn't very popular in the Fine Gael party was there can you describe the was there a sense of shock or what, how would you describe the reaction uh, yes there was a sense of a shock and and I remember when we were picking a candidate for the by-election uh, Liam Skelly um, we were really forced into canvassing I mean I think I spent every night during that campaign out canvassing and John Boland was put in charge and John was a hard taskmaster and you had to have a good reason why you weren't out. And then I remember particularly about that, Liam Skelly was very new and there was a bit of worry about how he'd cope at the doors answering the questions and he wouldn't have been steeped in Fine Gael policy. So two young bucks were put in charge of him, George Birmingham and Richard Bruton, and either one or the other had to be always by his side when he went to a door. And I'm letting these stories out. And when he went to the door, and if somebody says, well, I don't like your policy on such and such, George or Richard, their job was for Liam to say maybe a sentence and then say, you run on Liam to the next door, I'll talk to the people here about this. And he was run from door to door to make sure he, he didn't say anything he shouldn't say. So, I mean, it was a tough by-election because Fine Gael recognised that the best way to get back at Charlie was to win the by-election, which we did. Talking of tough times, uh, there is a tradition in Irish politics, not confined to any party, though probably more associated with Fianna Fáil of the heave. You would have witnessed and participated in quite a few of them in Fine Gael. Well, mainly, um, you see, I was in there from 81 to 87. And then I lost my seat for two, for two years, from 87 to 89. And I went off on the old Senate campaign around the country with my little car and my, my sandwiches in the back and the bottles of water and the whole lot. And I was driving into Wicklow to canvas uh, Godfrey Timmons, who was the, our Wicklow TD. And, and the 12 o'clock, just before the 12 o'clock, Angela's Bell, 
there was a break into the programme. It might have been one of your programmes. There was a break in to say, we've breaking news, Gareth Fitzgerald has just resigned. And I sat in the car and I cried. I was very upset about it and I hadn't expected it. And I had to go on my way then to do the canvas. So I wasn't there for the, I hadn't a vote in the next leadership uh, contest. And that's the one Alan Dukes won. But the main heave that I was involved in was when I was deputy leader of Fine Gael and four TDs um, announced that they were going to have a vote of no confidence in John Bruton. Um, and I was approached and uh, I was told, you know, we're not doing well on the polls and we need to do something about it. And I said, well, what, what are your plans? And they weren't able to say what they hoped would happen. They had no name they wanted to put forward. It was, it was not a terribly well thought out, just get rid of John Bruton and then we'll see what happens. Well, that's not what you do in politics. You don't throw it up like, like skittles or something and see how they fall. Um, and I fought hard for, for John Bruton. I thought it was unfair to, you know, it was possible that in the next election after that, he'd get a chance to be Taoiseach. And I fought hard and um, he did not get overthrown. And, but it was a difficult campaign. There were groups meeting in houses, as I see recently happened in the Labour Party. Um, I was part of a group that met and, and strategised to make sure John got as much chance as he could to, to sell himself to people. But you were a TD, were you not? Um, I mean, 1990, after the presidential election, I remember seeing John Boland, the aforementioned, yes. and a few more, uh, Fergus O'Brien, they were kind of yes. uh, conniving, might be the word, yes. and Boland referring to Alan Jukes as Mr. 26%, and yes. they took him out. They took him out. That was... It was, it was, that was very unpleasant, because they, they really just... I think they thought you just get rid of the leader and your your votes go up. But we've known subsequently that that just doesn't happen. Um, I wasn't part of that heave in any way. And, and, and obviously I was a supporter of Alan Jukes and most of us were particularly the more liberal side of the party. And Fergus and John just decided that this was what was going to happen. And Alan then eventually resigned. It, it was very unpleasant, but... You know, it's likely to happen in other parties, as we've seen, because the, there is a point at which people who are a TD worry about the percentage that the party is getting because their seat is on the line, not just the leader. And it was, it was, it was one of several heaves, I think, that uh, John Bruton had to deal with. And yes. the, the final blow, I think, came when along came the dream team, Michael Noonan and Jim Mitchell. Yes. <laughs> that was, well, that was... That was stupid, really, because there there wasn't a dream team as such. Um, they moved in, um, and the late Jim Mitchell, whom I loved dearly, but put forward things that everybody would get their money back from their air com or their air com shares. Um, that there was all sorts of things he announced, and there was taxis. He also took a, that the taxis were going to um, be allowed to do this, that, and the other, and get extra money. And you wake up in the morning and say, what has Jim suggested now? Uh, Jim was always looking at new ways to do it. I, I, Michael, Michael was a great minister and, and a great, you know, he was a great party man, but I don't know how much of his, how much he really, really wanted the leadership. And when he got the leadership then, I had been on, obviously, on the front bench. I was overthrown. Myself and Enda Kenny were, were thrown off the front bench and, and uh, went back to the back benches, and that was fine. I took my punishment, as it were. 
But it didn't really, it, the loyalty in the party was fractured at that stage. And, and it was a very unpleasant time. I really found it very unpleasant. And um, just before the next election, which was the 2002 election, wasn't it at that stage? Yeah, um, uh, Michael approached me and they were finding that they couldn't get spokespeople who were in Dublin near to the television and radio. And he approached me and asked me, would I go back onto the front bench? And um, I thought about it. I thought, I don't really, you know, it was kind of like, we need you now, but you didn't need me a year ago. And, but I did go, go back on to, uh, to help to carry some of the, the media coverage. Um, but it was a bad time and, and we suffered and we lost 23, I think it was, we lost more seats then than we lost more recently. Um, and it was a very difficult election. And, uh, and then Michael, of course, resigned. It's almost a tradition in Fine Gael at this stage that, that, that every leader is subject to a heave <laughs> post-Garrett. Yeah. Um, and Enda Kenny was, was set upon by his own, I won't say nearest and dearest, but yes. the people closest to him in terms yes, of rank yeah. in the party. What did you, how did you view that? Um, again, I thought, what is it that people haven't learned from the previous heaves? Because the heaves that we had didn't actually lead, they weren't the, the, the catalyst that brought you an extra 10% of the public's vote. It was almost like as if the public said, oh, there they are, They're, that's their games, we, we'll ignore it. And, and, and they went on and voted the way they wanted to vote. And so, so I just thought, why, why overthrow Enda again because they saw the polls weren't rising um, and yeah. look Sean I don't think there's any way of stopping that because we're all individually elected we are all self-employed one man one woman shows when you think about it and it, politics is, is cruel enough you don't make huge lasting friends in the sense that if you have if you see your colleague doing well and you end up in government you know that them doing well might stop you maybe making it into government so that kind of tension is there all the time and i'm watching watching the labor party recently you know whether they whether the movement will change them from three or five percent to ten percent remains to be seen it's a tough job to to bring a party up in the percentages in the polls. How do you account for the dramatic rise, it can be said, of Sinn Féin in, in fairly recent times, in the last election 2020, and continuing to outperform in the opinion polls, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? Two things, I think. Uh, a certain tiredness has come in about the Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael parties. Our membership is I don't, I don't, there are very few people under the age of 55 as members. There are some young Fine Gaelers, but very few people under, under 55 or even 60. Uh, so there's a kind of lack of zealousness there among the membership to kind of get out and fight for their party. And then there's, um, you know, the issue of individual votes. Sinn Féin have built a very good machine around them. They have very good... Um, systems in place, whatever kind of systems they have. A lot of them are paid workers. Um, a lot of them are people who have been, uh, you know, around helping them early on. They, they got in early to people, um, you know, to get them involved in their party. Um, they have had good 
leadership qualities there. And then once the North began to be reasonably calm again and people weren't being killed in the same way, um, people under 40 don't remember what it was like every morning or every second morning to wake up to hear about some atrocity. So saying to somebody, well, you shouldn't be voting for Sinn Féin, look what they did in the North, they say, well, what? I don't remember what they did. And As that helped to get them those extra middle-class votes. As somebody who was Minister for Justice when Gartha Jerry McKay was murdered uh, by IRA members in Adair in 1996, and whose position was defended, uh, the killers were, were in fact, they, they, there was a big campaign to have them transferred to Castlereagh um, to serve the, the, the remaining part of their sentence. And, and they got out earlier than might have been expected. How, how do you view the prospect of a Sinn Féin minister sitting behind the same desk in the Department of Justice that you sat behind? With a lot of trepidation, I'll be frank. And I don't know what what a Minister for Justice from Sinn Féin might demand when they went into justice. Um, they could demand to see files. They could demand to see, um, you know, information that is now well locked away. I don't know, and I haven't heard them saying they won't do that. Equally, I haven't heard them saying they will demand it. But, you know, they may well, even though they are backing it now, they may well decide to get rid of the Special Criminal Court which when the IRA campaign stopped, there was talk, would we get rid of that uh, court? I was dead against getting rid of it because there were still very serious criminals who could threaten people. And we can see that's still going on. And I'm glad the criminal court is, the special criminal court is still there. But when Sinn Féin would be in government, who's to say that they may change their mind? They've kind of got into trouble at the last election by saying they might get rid of it, but they might get rid of it. And then uh, the danger again is that we might be back to intimidation of witnesses and the kind of things that we saw in, in the ordinary courts. So I would have worries. And I, I notice they haven't been saying anything about justice. They've been taking front line on health. They've been taking front line on finance. And I know behind the scenes, they are briefing themselves very well on some of these ministries or on with people. I mean, I've heard that they're making appointments to see people involved in this to get themselves ready to be in government. I haven't heard them asking for meetings with senior Gardaí or that yet. I may, I may just be missing it, but I haven't. So I suspect that they are holding their fire about whether or not in a coalition they would take the Ministry for Justice because they may think that's, again, another one of those steps that might not go down well with the public. But I, I, would, I feel they're not ready yet to, to take that kind of role. Um, you know, they're, they're dealing with all the other policies that are dealing with people's lives. And at times I agree with some of what they say. At times I just say, wait till you're in government and you see how hard it is to do what you're asking the present government to do. And, and uh, it's a very different state of affairs when you've got to match your, your resources to, to changes. I mean, there's no quick fix to housing. Uh, Sinn Féin make it sound as if overnight they will have builders just building everywhere. A lot of building going on. There's still a lot of problems for people getting houses. And I know that the rent system, the rental system, a lot of people that I know who have single houses or two houses that they invested in when they had a bit of extra money, they're all getting out of it. So that's taking houses out of the rental market and therefore 
putting more onus onto the councils and onto the government to provide more houses.